time. Well, our text today is from John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 18. It begins like this. You may have heard it before. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, um, today is the first Sunday of Christmas. Um, And typically there's two Sundays in the Christmas season. You've heard the 12 days of Christmas, and that's not just a song about 84 birds or however many it is. It it really actually is meant to keep our eyes fixed on the fact that there are these 12 days of kind of feasting um, and and of, of remembering this incarnation of the Lord. There's two really big, really major, if you could spend your whole life trying to wrap your head around two key Christian doctrines, they would be this, the incarnation of the Lord, which we celebrate, remember, focus in on at Christmas, and the resurrection, which we celebrate, remember, focus in on at Easter, okay? Um, I've, I've wanted, these last couple weeks, I've wanted to kind of lay bare, I think, at least to my mind, the false logic that exists behind some of the stories that we know. We talked last Sunday about, if you remember, some of the, the gods, Venus and Baal and Asherah, Mars, uh, these kind of Greek gods that we think about that we learned about in elementary school, um, but also uh, the gods that Israel would have worshipped, Baal and Asherah. Their, their stories, the way that they interacted with the world, was a way of violence. It was a way of revolution, of saying, I'm going to throw off whoever's above me so that I can truly be the one in power. And Mary prophetically, powerfully in her song, the Magnificat, says that that's not the way things work. That's not the way the Lord works, and because it's not the way the Lord works, it's not the way the world works. On Christmas Eve, we sort of talked about the idea um, that 
with this little baby in a manger in a cave outside of a little town that you could pass by that scene and think that nothing big has really happened. And now here we are a day after Christmas, and the presents have mostly been opened, right? Hopefully. Um, Stuff has mostly been completed. Most of the cookies have been consumed. Um, And it's possible to think that at this moment that nothing has really changed, that we just sort of go back to life as it was with a little more stuff. But the truth is, is that if we have really paid attention, we know that in that manger, here within a manger lies the one who made the starry skies, right? The wonder is that the creator has become the creation. The wonder is that the one who has made all things has become one of the things that he has made. You know how strange that is? That the creator has become creation. But we also sort of live, so that's, that's sort of the background, thinking that nothing really big has happened. Today I want us to think a little bit about some of the stories that exist in our world. That, let's say you're going to sort of cast off the church, and it's a choice people make. Um, <laughs> and you're going to go to try to make sense of the world outside of Christ, outside of the scriptures, out, outside of what we know. One of the first stories, one of the first ways of understanding things that you're going to encounter is what I would want to call kind of the agnostic or the materialist logic. It's a logic that says we can only know what we can see, touch, smell, hear, right? Material. When I say materialist, it doesn't mean I want to buy everything at Target. It means, like, if I can't feel it or measure it, then I can't actually know anything about it. And so it makes this basic assumption that says if it's spirit, right, if it's soul, then it can't really be real because it can't be measured, right? So that anything that I can't see isn't actually real. This mindset, this view would say, well, you can actually trust logical conclusions, right? You can trust logic, but you can't trust personal encounter, right? So you might go watch a special tonight on the National Geographic channel or something or some science or discovery channel and see Neil deGrasse Tyson or somebody else get up there and tell you math is the fundamental language of the universe, right? That if you can write an equation, then you know that it's real, right? You don't have to travel the speed of light to know that the theory of relativity explains some important things. This is kind of how materialist logic works. If I can see it, measure it, calculate it, I can know that it's real. But when it comes to personal encounter, when it comes to coming face to face with truth, well, that couldn't happen because truth is not a person. Truth is a thing, right? That's the materialist or the agnostic view of things. They would say, well, we can't really know this stuff, but we can kind of guess and infer a few things. Or when it comes to things like religion or life choices, we can't really know, but we can do What works for us? How many of you have encountered that? I can't really know whether or not 
Jesus is real or God is real, but if that works for you, if it's functional, if it's pragmatic, if it gets, if it gets you through a hard day, then that's fine. We can't claim to have any hold on truth, but we can look at evidence. We certainly can't do what John tells us, which is to have a hold on the very glory of God. I think as Christians, in fact, I think the only reason to be a Christian is that while leaving room for some human fallibility, of course, we can say that we have actually encountered the true thing. We've actually encountered truth. And Mary has actually held truth in her hands, <laughs> grown truth in her womb, right? As Christians, we hold truth in our hands when we come to the table. We can encounter truth. It's not something we theorize. It's not something we have to calculate. It's here for us. Sometimes, even in the church, we get into this mindset that says that it's ultimately about the pragmatics. It's ultimately about a practical application of things and not truth itself. The thing that gets me out of bed in the morning is the fact that all goodness, all truth, all beauty has made himself known to us and entered into our world so that we would not miss it. And so this is part of my conviction that we don't gather here on Sunday. We don't come to worship simply because we get something out of it. We don't come to worship even necessarily, and this is going to challenge a lot of the way that for the, a lot of the reasons that a lot of people go to church. We don't come to worship to charge up our batteries so that we can get through the rest of the week. We come to worship because when we worship the Lord, we do something. Something happens in worship. We make ourselves available, present to the Lord of the universe, to the one who has become incarnate. And in fact, to the one who told us to worship. Worship ultimately, when we really get down to it, if you come to church to charge up your batteries, I'm glad. I'm glad you come to church. But worship ultimately is about obedience to the Lord who made the batteries in the first place and who calls us to encounter him because truth is not a thing. It's a person. Truth is not something we calculate or a knowledge that we have. It's a person that we meet. And this is what John is trying to say. He says these words, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, there's a couple things you have to know. The first thing you have to know is that this is not the first time that the Bible has used the words in the beginning. 
They're actually at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, which I think is really important. But more importantly, they are the first words in the Bible in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And John picks those words on purpose. In the beginning was the word. He picks those words on purpose so that we will begin to understand that he's not talking about something that is, he's not just trying to go to the beginning of a story when he says in the beginning. When he says in the beginning was the word, he's trying to take us back even before history began, believe it or not. He's trying to take us before creation, before creation even started to the moment when nothing was but God was, right? When all was darkness and yet there was the Lord who had yet even to create light and dark. The word that he uses is a really important word, and I'm not a big fan of just, you know, making you learn Greek words just for the sake of it, but this one actually matters, okay? The word is logos, okay? Just like the word logic, L-O-G-O-S. Logic, or like you study biology, or uh, what else do you study? (laughs) All those things that end in L-O-G-Y, they all come from this word logos, because In the ancient world, you had this idea of a sort of rationality, a sort of order, a sort of logic that existed in the world. And the logos was so critical, it it spoke to that sense of order. And so when John picks up on this and said, in the beginning was the word, was the logos, he's taking a word from like Greek philosophy and the, you know, the YouTube philosophers of the day. And he's taking that word, and he's applying it. He's applying it to a scriptural understanding. He's applying it to the creation story, because remember, how is it that God creates? In the beginning was the word. Wait, that's John. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke. He said, let there be light. God, unlike Baal and Asherah and Venus and Mars and Zeus and all the other gods of the ancient world, creates not through whacking somebody's head off. God creates with a word, with speech. He creates not through violence, but through speaking into existence where there was nothing. But it's not just creation. How does God encounter his people over and over? The prophets come to speak. And what do they say? The word of the Lord to whoever it is. Right? The word of the Lord to Israel. The word of the Lord to Judah. The word of the Lord to the king. God enters into his people's life through a word. He enters into their world through speech. And so if we don't take seriously the idea of a word, then we've misunderstood who God is. How is it that God speaks to us today in a way that we know that we know that we know? It's through a printed text, which this one anyway doesn't have any pictures. It's all words. Right? 
It's the words of the Lord. And then not only that, but he tells us, oh, let's see here. In uh, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that we might all believe through him. So he sends, not only is there the word who is ultimately going to become Jesus, but he's going to send somebody who's speaking words, and that guy who's speaking word, his name is John, and John's going to come and speak words about the word so that we might all believe the word and respond with our own words, right? John takes this word, lagos, and it's all there through history, but it was also in his current day. The Stoic philosophers, the Platonists, they believed in this idea of a logic, of an order. We would call it God. They understood this kind of God-like thing that meant that there was order to the world. That when stuff happened, it wasn't all just random and weird and out of nowhere. There was that logic. There was that order. And John, I think this is really fascinating because we as Christians sometimes... We want to have our world and let the world kind of do whatever it's going to do, but we're going to kind of do what we're going to do. John, the, go- the evangelist, the one who writes the gospel, he goes and takes a word from the secular world, from secular philosophy, and he takes that word and he brings it into the scriptures. He brings it into the Bible. That's amazing to me. He was so in tune, he was so keen to interact with the world around him so that people would know and believe and be saved. He was willing to take their stuff and transform it and redeem it and make it something that was sanctified. We also, so we see it in the creation story, in Israel's history, we see it in the witness who is John the Baptist, we see it show up in the Stoics and the other philosophers of the day, We also see it in wisdom literature. And this is where it starts to develop a little bit. If you go, remember when we were doing Proverbs, I think in Sunday school, right? And we got to Proverbs 8. We started reading that chapter, Proverbs 8, and going, wait a second, man, this is some intense language about this wisdom figure. Wisdom, like with a capital W. And what we started to see there is that God isn't just wise, but the wisdom is like this personification who stands next to the Lord and does things for the Lord and is present at creation, all these kinds of things. And so it starts, this idea begins to develop from, okay, God spoke and he had speech and that's how he interacts with us, but also there is this sort of word or wisdom or logic or order sort of stands next to God and is a participant and, and contributes to the way that the Lord is governing the world, the Lord who is sovereign, the Lord who is over all things, the Lord has wisdom. And continually when God interacts with the world, he like has this sort of way of interacting. So that we get to stories like the Exodus. We get these real, and I know I'm all over scripture here this morning, but I'm trying to show you that this is all through everything. That as soon as you look at one thing, you pull on the thread, and it's going to show up in all these different places. There's a great story in Exodus chapter 33. Um, If you want to flip over there, you can. Um, I won't have our security throw you out if you pull out your phone. Uh, That'll be okay today. Um, 
All right. So Exodus 33, this is, this is what it says. Moses said to the Lord, Moses is up on, on Mount Sinai right now, okay? And he's talking face to face with God. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you'll send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he, the Lord, said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he, Moses, said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. Okay, so Moses is going back and forth. He's going back and forth with God. He's saying, you want me to lead this people out into the world, but this is not going to be a good situation. They just rebelled against you. They just kind of did this whole thing with Baal and the calf, and I had to smash the tablets because I was angry. And I mean, this whole kind of thing, right? God, don't let me take these people if you're not going to come with me. I can, we cannot be, we're not going to be your people if it's based on my vision. We're not going to be your people. We're not going to make it through the wilderness. We're not going to make it to the promised land if it's based on my vision and my leadership ability and my charisma and my ability to stream services successfully every single week, Moses says. <laughs> also, maybe Jeff said. <laughs> we won't be your people if it's up to your leaders. We can only be your people if you are with us. And that word, Please show me your glory. I don't think it's an accident that we flip over to John. And he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and and this, then, is what happens to Moses. God says, if I go in front of you, I'm going to explode your brains, like, you know, to the end of the Raiders of the Lost Ark or something. Like, it's going to melt your face, and it's not going to be good, right? So God says, if I'm going to go in front of you, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you, and I'm going to put my hand over you, and I'm going to hide you, he says, in the cleft of the rock, and then you'll see my backside, and Sunday schools all over the place snickered and laughed because the idea is that you're somehow, you know, seeing God's butt or something like that, and that's not what the text is saying, okay? So I'm trying to get that out of your head. That's not what it's saying. <laughs> what it's saying is you will see the trail, the train of my glory, right? The idea is that God is kind of like a person wearing a big robe. And at the end of that robe are the great little tassels that come at the end of robes, right? These little things. And we can just sort of catch the end of them. We can just sort of catch the back of that glory. This is exactly what Isaiah 6 says when Isaiah sees into heaven. And it says the train of his robe fills the whole room. 
the very end of all of God's glory just keeps going and going and going, and you catch the very little bit of it. It's just like in the Gospels when that woman with the issue of blood reaches out, and what does she touch? She touches the hem of Jesus' robe. She touches the edge of his glory, of his presence. When God walks in front of Moses, this is what Moses is seeing, okay? He's not looking at his face, again, for fear of Moses' own life. But he's looking at the very evidence of his presence. He's looking at the result of his presence, his glory. His glory. Okay. Here's what I'm going to tell you. <laughs> and it's the day after Christmas, so I assume you guys are all, you're the ones who are in, this, in it to win it here, right? Whenever God shows up in the Old Testament, when it says the angel of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the strong right arm of the Lord, even here, it's Christ. It's the Son of God. It's the Son of God being made present. Because we don't see the Father. Never in Scripture do we see the Father. But what we see instead, if you look in Revelation, it talks about one who's on the throne, but it doesn't tell you what he looks like. It doesn't actually give you a description. What we see in Scripture when we see God is the Son. It's true God from true God. Light from light. And I know this is, hopefully this is all good with everybody. <laughs> But, but this is how, when God interacts with his creation, he shows up to us as the Son. The pre-incarnate Christ is now and has always been the glory of the Lord. God himself. The glory of the Lord is, in fact, the Lord, the Son, the Christ. Paul will go on to say in 1 Corinthians 10, that he was the rock who was with us in the wilderness. He was the pillar of cloud. He's the pillar of fire. That God present to his people is actually the Son of God. This is, we go to the Old Testament, we can discover the Trinity there. That he is in fact there, present with us. The Son, who always was, who has been since the beginning, is now here, because of the incarnation, is now here in the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth. He's gone from being the eternal son, the second person in the Trinity from before time, who's involved in creation, who is the word that is spoken, and who himself continues to speak to uphold creation. He's gone from being all of those things to a person who has a name, who has a place, who has a mom. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. And here's the story that I hope we catch this Christmas. That just like the Exodus, where God came down so that he might take us with him, God came down to save his people. God in Christ has entered our time and our place, our reality, our very bodies so that he might take us somewhere. Think about the Exodus. God enters into their world. He comes in a burning bush and he speaks to Moses and he has Moses come and take them up out of Egypt. God enters into the story to do battle with Pharaoh who holds his people captive. 
so that he can set them free. He brings them through the Red Sea, and ultimately he brings them to the Promised Land. Okay? Well, the Lord enters our world, not in a shrub, but in a virgin from Nazareth named Mary. He enters into our world, not to save us from physical slavery to Pharaoh, but to free us from all the powers of sin and death. It's what Nathan read in Galatians. I want to make sure I get it right. It's in Galatians 4.3. In the same way also, when we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, Paul says. We were enslaved to those elementary principles, sin and death. But God entered in and saved us from them. He enters, most importantly, to lead us not into a physical promised land, right? It's not that God has some nation far off. He's trying to get all of his people together so he can take us to the moon or set up a colony on Mars and take us somewhere else. But what is it that God wants to take us? Elon Musk may want to take you to Mars. God does not want to take you to Mars, okay? He enters into our world to bring us not into the promised land, but into life in the spirit. Into life that is raised from the dead. Into life that is enlivened. Given hope and joy and peace and meaning and structure and, and logic, order, through his Holy Spirit. And this is the thing that's really been gripping me this week. Is that all of us, sitting here reading the gospel, knowing and believing that God is present in Jesus Christ, we are more blessed than Moses. We are more blessed than the people who saw the glory descend on Mount Sinai. We've got more information than they could ever have. We have more access than they could ever have. The fact that we're on this side of Pentecost where the Spirit has fallen on His people and spoken through His people, with words, by the way, spoken through His people into their very hearts. We, we have access to all kinds of, all kinds of life. And yet we so often just ignore it. What only Moses received in his day, all people on earth have available to them today. And I guess so my question today. Have we believed the lie? Have we believed the materialist story? That the only things that are real are the things that I can touch, feel, taste, see, and hear. Or might it be the case that God has done something new? Might it be the case that God has redeemed the very spirit and soul of the world? That God has changed everything in his son Jesus and because He's changed everything. We have access to a whole realm of life. God desperately wants us to know that he's speaking. He's speaking to us in creation, right? I encourage you to go study math and astronomy and biology and chemistry and find God in those places because he's there, right? He's speaking to us in creation. He's speaking to us 
most clearly in his scriptures, which we have and all of us have sitting on our shelves. He's speaking to us most immediately by his spirit. And if we will learn to listen, he's speaking to us even now in this very moment. And we can develop the ears of Mary, for example, who treasured up all these things and held them in her heart. We can listen to the Spirit with that kind of tenderness and care. And the last thing I want to say that's amazing about this passage in John 1 is that Christ has entered. Christ has entered into our very situation. He's taken on human flesh. You've been eight years old, Christ was eight years old. You've been a baby, Christ was a baby. You were a teenager, Christ was a teenager. He's gone through all of that stuff. He's lived that life. And he did it not just for kicks, but he did it to save us. He did it to save you. Christ has entered into human flesh. Paul says in Galatians that he came in under the law so that he might save those who are under the law. And this is, this is the thing I'm reflecting on this morning. In order for us to be saved, redemption begins at the same door that corruption opened. Okay? Redemption begins at the same door, the same place, the same spot that creation opened. Sorry, corruption. So where did corruption enter into the world? Through a woman standing at a tree, grasping a fruit she was not yet to have. But where does redemption enter into the world? Through a woman who will find herself at the foot of a tree, at the foot of the cross. Not grasping fruit to pull it down for herself to do what she will with it, but receiving the fruit of that tree. Receiving the very blood receiving the very broken body. What do you see in your life, in your world, that needs to be redeemed? That needs sanctification? If we hear what Paul says in Galatians, it's only going to come as we listen to the Spirit which has been sent into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And it's only going to happen as we face the very moment, the very place that corruption has entered. My prayer this morning is that we really would have what it takes not to be big and strong and brave and go do it on our own, but to simply trust and know the Spirit is always at work, drawing us to himself, pulling us in to this life of peace, pulling us in to life that is filled with his hope. I pray that as we listen to the Spirit today, that we will hear and respond to him. Being able to cry out, Abba, Father, Father, 
being able to receive Christ yet again and live in the trust that he's the one who brings all life into being. He's also the one who saves all life. Let's put our faith in him again this morning. As we come to the table...